Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Curbs. And I'm Lish. And this week, we're falling in love all over again with the quintessential Disney princess, Cinderella. So grab your glass slippers and a furry friend or two as we dance our way through a classic love story that made us all believe that dreams and wishes really can come true. Today we are here to discuss my mother's absolute favorite Disney movie of all time. And that's saying something since she loves Beauty and the Beast almost more than any movie in the world. But this one... I was going to say, I thought that all mothers loved Beauty and the Beast the best. And they do. But every time this film comes up, my mom is quick to gush about it. Like, oh, this scene, and then this one, and this one. And today's film, Mm -hmm. and princess, is Cinderella. Cinderella herself, the one with that started chokers as a trend, the one that made us mm, all want yeah. to walk in really uncomfortable glass shoes, which are completely impractical, the one that made twirling fun, all those types of things. She made chores a good time. What can't she do? You know what I mean? So yeah. today with Cinderella at the helm, we're going to talk about everything to do with this gal. But I think before we dive into it, we really need to give an off the cuff rating, what we think of this film, just from purely emotional reaction. And I'm gonna give you the honor of sharing with our audience your thoughts first. Okay, well, um, I really, really like this movie. Like it's pretty high on my on my princess list. And it's interesting because it was not always the case. Like I was not like a little girl that loved Cinderella. I, I was honestly, couldn't care less about it when I was little but the older I get the more I actually like really really like her as a character and appreciate just how stunningly beautiful this movie is so it was Mm -hmm. fun to learn about like what really went into into getting it made but my initial rating and reaction is I'm going to give it an eight that's pretty high that That is is, one and I feel more confident that your rating will stay there the mm-hmm. whole time we discuss this. Unlike Snow White, who you convinced yourself was higher <laughs> and then had to bring it back down in a footnote. It was, it was an emotional roller coaster. I, yeah. I don't know what to this say. This one is an time. emotional roller coaster, but one we're thrilled to be on from the yeah. beginning. And the emotions mm-hmm. stay high. For me, I was the same as you. I was not a girl who grew up loving this movie. I actually resisted it quite a bit because mm-hmm. it was very girly. And I- oh, yeah did not want to be super girly. I never liked pink. I never liked ruffles. I didn't like glitter. I didn't like anything princessy, which of course now is hilarious because I'm literally wearing glitter, pink, and surrounded by princess memorabilia. So that's hilarious. Little did I know what the world had in store for me, but I would actually give this one, I gotta just, I have to go out and say it. I'd give it a 10. This is a perfect 10 for me. A 10. Yes. When I was rewatching it this week, I was watching it with my roommate. We were laughing so hard. I sang with all the songs. Every single Mm -hmm. scene just made me feel like magical and really part of the story. The King is my favorite character. I love that scene where he and the Duke are arguing about Cinderella getting away. And this is 
one of the most quotable princess films, in my opinion. I can't even count how often Joel and I spit lines at each other. From so no one, no one can see me. My mouth was open because <laughs> she was the king. Guest. The king is my least favorite character. Like he's so annoying. Uh, I can't believe he's your I favorite character. I think he's hilarious. So pink. Like why is he, he is so very pink. pink? Yeah, but he's just—I don't know—he's so silly. And I mean, a fun little tidbit to get us started here. I learned in my research that he was actually inspired by Walt Disney because at the time this film was made, Walt really wanted grandkids, and so mm-hmm. that idea that the king is obsessed with having grandkids is actually very true to life. Which I think is—it makes it even better for me. He's an even that more is, layered character. That is pretty amazing. And I maybe like I should say that. The King isn't so much my favorite character as his relationship with the Grand Duke is my favorite Mm -hmm. relationship in the film. I love watching them. I think they're hilarious, but we'll get into them, I'm sure, a bit more later. For now, we should probably start at the very beginning, you know, mid to late 40s. We've had films like Fantasia, Pinocchio. We're trying to ride the wave of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but things are just not coming together the way the Disney company wanted them to. I mean, sure, Snow White was a huge success. We were thrilled. We thought we could just ride that train to the top, but Disney was actually over $4 million in debt following World War II. A lot of that was because the European market had been closed off. So as they were starting to make progress there, they had to pull out because, you know, World War II, obviously kind of getting in the way of that. And they had been keeping themselves afloat by producing a lot of training films during the war and diversifying mm-hmm. the types of films that they put out. So, you know, those like Saludos Amigos, yeah. Melody Time, Fun and Fancy Free. They're kind of terrible. They're really bad. Yeah, they're like hard to watch. They are. But that live action and animation combination seemed to be kind of working for people, but never to the success they wanted. And those films I mentioned before, Pinocchio and Fantasia, even Dumbo, they hadn't had the same success as Snow White, which meant that failure to make money quickly and soon would have ended Disney animation. This was a a big opportunity for them to either get it right or to get it really wrong. Well, that's kind of how it is in like the film industry because you're really putting so many eggs in a basket because it's like such a big undertaking, such a big financial and time commitment, especially to get an animated film out. Like that's years and like millions of dollars. Yet it's like, if you end up with a product that people Mm -hmm. don't like and doesn't make money, then like you could just be toast as a company. Absolutely. So as- as a way of trying to look ahead, because you know, Walt could never just sit on his laurels. Of course not. Disney actually had four films in pre-production mm-hmm. before Cinderella was officially pushed forward. Those films included Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, and Lady and the Tramp, as well as our girl, Cindy herself. Yes. So in a very short amount of time, Walt and his team had to decide which one they were gonna push forward. And ultimately they decided to go with Cinderella because it was a story that you know everyone knows and has something for everyone. It's got romance, it's got comedy, it's got suspense. And really they just put the pedal to the metal, you know, threw a penny in a wishing well and hoped for the best. And I think what they got was the best. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was stunning. It obviously paid off. They completely rebranded as a company and we'll kind of go through like what the impact of it was later but yeah that was huge coming in for the story so 
Um, I know this is like a very, very well-known fairy tale that goes back as far as the 1500s. This was actually based on a book called The Story of Cinderella by Levi Muriel, which came out in 1944. So if you go through that book, you'll see it much more verbatim. There's a lot of changes from that book from the original story. A lot of weird things happen in those old, old fairy tales, like people cutting off their feet and stuff like that. So that was uh, kind of taken out and adjusted for this one. (laughs) That must have been the Brothers Grimm version, right? Where it was usually more violent, a lot darker, and no one ended up happy. No, no. I don't know (laughs) like how you call those a fairy tale, but that's, you know, I mean, fairy tales in a lot of cultures were more like warnings or parables for young kids, Mm -hmm. like to teach them manners and to keep them in line. And one thing I thought was interesting, did you know this story existed in Asia as well? That there are versions of it outside of Europe? No, I didn't know that. That's very cool. Yeah, Yeah. just I have nothing else to follow up with that fact. That was just Just a fact that I learned and thought I'd share. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I get it. It's like the base of the story is pretty simple and it's pretty you know, can be adapted easily for different cultures. And I think we see that very simply in even like modern society, how many versions there are of this. Like every studio has their like Cinderella that they put out that mm-hmm. the story in some shape or another, even Hilary Duff is in. Literally called a Cinderella story. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like one of those, like it's been adapted and readapted. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that made the Disney version so successful as well is who they had spearheading the project, right? So there was this group of animators known as Walt's Nine Old Men because, well, they were old and there were nine of them. And they were the veteran Disney animators that actually were responsible for most of those films we think of from the 30s through the 60s with that quintessential Disney 2D animation style. And a lot of these men had worked on Snow White as well. So they kind of knew what the Disney expectation was Mm -hmm. for making an animated film, but they also knew how to layer different storytelling and enchanting moments on top of a story like Cinderella to make it, you know, that quintessential Disney magic. So as a result, casting animators for specific characters was just as important as casting the voice because each animator would bring different elements of their personality to the characters and scenes they animated. So for example, a man named Ward Kimball was responsible for Lucifer the cat. And you know that scene where Lucifer is trying to find Gus Gus under the teacups and Lucifer does this really weird hand waving and mm-hmm. maniacal yeah. face thing when he figures out where Gus is? Those types of movements are very indicative of the type of personality Ward Kimball had. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that Eric Larson, who did a lot of the animation for Cinderella, was a little bit more country. He was a little bit softer and simpler. So his character, as a result, takes on some of those personality traits, which I think is such a strong testament to how talented all of these animators and artists were at Disney at the time. Also on Walt to know like who's going to suit what best. Like you said, casting the animator is just as important as casting an actor or actress in a live action film because they're literally creating and breathing life into the characters in the same way. So yeah, it's super yes. important. And some of those animators found themselves responsible for characters that they had like types of characters they had never had to work with Mm -hmm. before. So um, I think, was it Frank Thomas who did Lady Tremaine? I think it was Frank Thomas. He had never done a villain before of any kind. 
So it was a really interesting creative and professional challenge for him to be given that sort of role. And I mean, she is one of the best villains, if not the best, because she is just evil yeah. all the way down so with good. no magic. Yeah. <laughs> She's just the worst. A lot of great learning for the animators came out of this as well. And not that everything needs to be about learning and growing and improving yourself, but it is 2021 and we're trying to go for the future yeah. here, yeah. better ourselves. So let's celebrate when people better themselves in the past too. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, they brought in some interesting production practices that they used in Snow White that I don't think they did on Pinocchio or Fantasia. One that I thought was really interesting is actually like filming the scenes with an actress being Cinderella mm-hmm. and then using that as not only a guide for the animation, some of them literally like blew it up and traced it in some cases just to get the like real yeah. like human movement. Um, I know that like Mm -hmm. some of the animators are kind of more resistant to that technique than others because they feel it kind of takes away from their creativity, but I think it's a really interesting way. And I think you can see it in Cinderella and how she moves specifically in some scenes, like when she's dancing and like the flow, when you really watch it, there's a very like real sense of how she is animated, that she's a real person and like a person can move this way, which I think. Really yes well and hand motions in particular yeah. I don't know if like every time I've watched this film mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how old I was I noticed certain hand motions that looked almost too real like too fluid so when she's walking her fingers up her leg to like flick the bird in the bum yeah. or when Lady Tremaine goes in to wake up her daughters and goes there's still a chance that one of you can get them and her hand kind of does that little point at both of them and a flourish it's so smooth mm-hmm. and fluid yeah. there's no way I I applaud the animators for what they're able to do without rotoscoping. But if they had footage to put their cells over top of, like they would not have gotten that sort of natural movement. And I think you can really see the difference because like there's kind of like a a line between um, the humans and how they're animated and then the animals, which aren't really animated realistically. That's not how like mice move or anything like that. So it's like, can really Mm -hmm. tell that like that extra care or attention was put into actually mirroring the human Mm -hmm. movement and fluidity. So that's really cool. Well, and because once again, just like in Snow White, the animals were given personalities Mm -hmm. as well. Now this film obviously took it to the next level. Yeah. Because more interaction between the human characters and the animal characters than there are in other films. And we'll talk about that a bit more later. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think all of this, you know, applying real life visuals and then putting it through the lens of animation really adds to how realistic that all feels and looks to us as an audience. It feels organic and symbiotic instead of choppy, the way that the live action animation combos always yeah. did. Yeah. Right. And I mean, we talked about the nine old men. So I want to actually steer the conversation towards another bright shining star of this production, which is Mary Blair. And I think she's like a pretty oh, common name. I would say that most people know, you know, who Mary Blair is and and her impact on some early Disney films. Uh, but she actually mm-hmm. started on the ink and paint team. And she 
kind of hated her life there a little bit because the ink and paint team, as we discussed in the Snow White episode, is very like you're filling in cells that already predetermined colors. That's very like robotic, very repetitive. And she had a lot of creative energy that she wanted to add. So she got involved uh, on the design team. And some of the stuff that she made for this movie is so iconic, so stunning. If you actually look at some of her original design images and then compare them to the final product, they're completely verbatim. Um, In my opinion, some of the most beautiful images in the film actually were just like straight out of her designs, like everything with the castle, all of those blues and how like the light blue and the dark blue and all of the colors were used. That was all coming from her. It's much more impressionist, isn't it? Her style of work. It's less realistic and more fantastic in the sense that she's examining how shape and color mm-hmm. and lighting all kind of fuse together to create a sensation yeah. rather than a solid Exactly, form. which is actually some of the animators found to be a bit of a pain in the ass because it's like actually kind of harder <laughs> to animate because they're working really hard to like, you know, we were just talking about like what they're doing with their their human characters and how hard they're working to make them, you know, look and feel real. And then they're given this environment that doesn't kind of match up with that. And I think the end result is something really, really beautiful, but I think there was a lot of frustrations on uh, the animation side and like how to collaborate those two things together. Well, and we see people reacting extremely positively or negatively to her work now too. I mean, she was so instrumental in Disneyland's version of uh, It's a Small World, Mm -hmm. which is very graphical. It's very contrasting shapes and colors. And some people love it and some people really hate it and think it looks either childish or not finished or unpolished. I mean, that is an interesting legacy she leaves as well, where, you know, (laughs) you love it or you hate it. And we just both have to be fans. We both have to be fans, yeah. Um, I think some Mm -hmm. of her like iconic things you kind of mentioned in that carries over through her films and through her other artworks, use of color. Um, She often like picks colors that before this time might have been contrasting colors that don't necessarily go side by side, but she took leaps to, to put them there. Cinderella is a good example, but if you look at something like Alice in Wonderland as like, you know, a really good example of her picking new things that shouldn't really work but they are surprisingly beautiful together not blending colors so keeping things in their like succinct uh, areas and lines so not only did mary blair introduce a very stylized look and feel to her scenes like so this is love and like you said all the shots of the castle and this and that but i don't know if you ever noticed before i know i hadn't before i dug into this a little bit but do you realize that most of the movie takes place inside? There's only really the one scene, arguably two, mm-hmm. I guess, where she's going to the ball yeah. and coming back. That's outside. Every other scene takes place indoors, which I know it sounds like to some people maybe a silly thing to make your head go. Yeah. But I, most Disney films have way more outdoor yeah. space, way more time with the characters in nature. I'm thinking literally every other princess movie I can think of at least five scenes off the top of my head that are outside that are outdoors and the other thing that comes with those characters being indoors now then in Cinderella is that 
you needed to make those indoor spaces highly stylized and fully realized, right? Because how else are the characters going to actually interact with each other and and their environment? Because a lot of the time Cinderella is on her own Mm -hmm. in shots as well. So the shots of her cleaning the house, it's just her and the room that she's in. So the animators paid a lot of attention to interiors and design aspects like, you know, oh, crumbling plaster on this wall, Mm -hmm. or like the carpet is scuffed over here. And those little things not only tell us more about the story of the house, which is important to our understanding of who she is, but also gives us a way to understand characters' emotions Mm -hmm. as well. So for example, when Cinderella arrives at the palace, there are those giant pillars on either side of the door and like all those doorways are super tall. They help show how uncomfortable she is with being Mm -hmm. there because she feels really small and insignificant. And then you see, you know, in the kitchen, things are more realistically Mm -hmm. sized because she's comfortable there. She knows what she's doing. She feels in charge. So any space where our character, our heroine, Mm -hmm is supposed to feel uncomfortable or insignificant or maybe out of her depth. Those rooms are all huge. Everything is super towering. And then of course that shot of her and Lady Tremaine's room with the window grates making those bars over her, like she's in jail. Like, I mean, spectacular. Those, those types of details are another reason that I think Cinderella was a more fleshed out experience for audiences because we're picking up on these cues subliminally Mm -hmm. or subconsciously and then when they're brought out and set in front of us and it's like we made the doors bigger to make her look uncomfortable you're like oh you You did did do that you're right you did that and now now you can't help but notice it when you watch it and it just adds that one more layer to this seemingly simple story that has so many ways to go deeper and even how like the the palace looks there's a couple scenes I think where she's looking out into it because if she's like you know dreaming or like fantasizing about it and it looks completely different how the color is and it looks like not real and it's like it's almost like a painting well I mean it is Mm -hmm. a painting but you know that's kind of how they did it compared to like when she's there like it just it feels very very far away yes it clashes with like the realistic attic and you know tight quarters that she's in 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 a similar way yeah and the some of the spaces are not the only ways that we showed you know, we as an audience were shown who Cinderella really is. We also got to see a lot more about her when she was with her animal friends, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the differences between these animals and the ones we've seen in Snow White? Well, they were actually given a little bit more personality, I feel. They're given names. They were her actual friends. Snow White kind of like sang and hung out with the animals. These ones, they didn't even really attempt realism with the animals like we kind of talked about the mouse the mice how they're standing up and like the birds they just gave them like a bright color and some of them are wearing clothes so yeah, they to say most of the yeah. birds and mice are wearing clothes yeah, like when yeah. is Lesh gonna mention the clothes the clothes <laughs> yes they're completely devoid of like any sense of realism which is an interesting contrast like we mentioned to like how cinderella and mm-hmm. the the stepsisters are animated well and as a result there's some people's favorite characters doesn't your sister love Gus more than like any other Gus character it's her spirit animal yeah she, yeah. she is Gus Gus <laughs> shout out yeah yeah well and another one people really love is Lucifer the cat Lucifer, Who loves Lucifer? is nobody tons of people I love Lucifer he's hilarious the I worst. think he's so funny because he's the first 
to be mean, but then also the quickest to get butt hurt about something as well. Like he is your classic schoolyard bully. And what I think is most hilarious about Lucifer is this little tidbit I found out where Disney actually received a letter from a woman in Brooklyn after the film came out who was upset at how Lucifer was presented in the film. She thought that he was too mean and that his characterization was an affront to cats everywhere. Like how dare Mr. Disney put a cat into the film who's so horribly represented. And then Disney actually responded with this really tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic letter, basically being like, I love all animals, but some animals are just, you know, different. And like going on and on about how he's more of a dog person, but cats are fine. And people took Lucifer very seriously. These animals were not just animals Mm -hmm. to people. They were apparently creatures to be defended. So honestly, the moment when after Gus Gus and Jacques get that key up the stairs and like Cinderella's like so happy like you got the key and then Lucifer like covers them up and I'm just like you little guy it's it makes always made me so mad and it still makes me so it mad it's hilarious it honestly it makes me laugh every oh. time and like when he blows up the candle so quickly he thinks he's smarter than yeah. everyone oh man I really just think he's yeah so question how long do you think this movie spent in pre-production just like literally figuring out the story and you know filming some of the live action pieces if you had to guess I mean we know that they had a couple films on the go but we don't know how long they were on the go for before picking this one I don't know two years four years took them four Four years years to literally get their their crap together to like you know start what, the animation process on this movie yeah so like pre-production or as you just said their crap like what does that involve what would be going on in those I mean they're years? essentially putting the script together deciding on the story deciding on the characters um probably doing some design work some like initial character uh animation so I'm sorry is four years a long time that's is a crazy a time? long time like, to me well, well, the reason I ask is because to me, as a noob, a pleb who doesn't know much about the world of animation, if they're a somewhat fledgling studio who's only really made like four animated full-length films and are leading the yeah. charge, to me, four years doesn't sound that long to get it together. Yeah, I mean, they do that now. I'm they Disney will have uh, writers and directors, honestly, on staff for years, just like you know, formatting the story and putting it together. But it's still, it's like a really long time just to get the initial stuff done to actually like start animation. But this is actually kind of classic Disney is to spend so much time in the beginning and then have to really, really move quickly in the end. And by the time the story was solidified, they had only like six months to actually get the project done across the finish line which is kind of crazy yeah well when you put it in that context it it does make me go like guys come on pull it together I guess also when you combine that with the fact that they knew this needed to be a Mm -hmm. hit there's a lot of pressure get it out sooner was a lot of pressure but you'd almost want you'd almost think that they'd be like we need to get this out sooner because without this we have no money oh I'm sure that there was a bunch of people uh breathing down Walt's neck essentially telling him that it had to move faster, but he was never the type to do something quick just to get it out. Like he wanted to do it right. And in this case that paid off. And aren't we glad that it did? Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled that it paid off. And you know, me, we can't 
have a discussion about a Disney princess film without discussing the music. Now, Cinderella's soundtrack is some of the most romantic garbage I think I've, I've ever heard in my life. Like the, so this is love waltz. Are you kidding me? Like, what is that? Like it's, it's kind of terrible. Yeah. It's terrible, but also so good. You know what I mean? Like so, so good. A dream is you wish your heart makes. I like get that out one. of here. That, that is a tear. Yeah. That's a tear yeah. jerker. Okay. You want to get me to cry at a Disney fireworks show? You're going to be putting that on. Absolutely. And this film was actually the first one that they wrote songs for with the express purpose of becoming popular hits. So like we know from Snow White that some of the songs mm-hmm. went on to be popular. Yeah. The soundtrack did really well, but Disney, that conniving mm-hmm. guy, he was like, you know what? This time I think I just want this to go straight to number one. I just want this to do so well that people want to own the soundtrack separate from the film. You could like the soundtrack and not the film and still buy it. I mean, really, this was the beginning of Disney starting to really push merchandising yeah. hard with his films. And so he ended up approaching popular music writers who had already written yeah. hits and the soundtrack album sold nearly a million copies and was nominated for best song and best score, which I think is a pretty big achievement, sure. especially when animated films were still kind of a fledgling yeah. enterprise, like, and they were being recognized for those big categories. And not only that, Walt decided to amp up the production mm-hmm. value of the soundtrack as well by introducing this concept of overdubbing to animation. Do you know what overdubbing is? Tell me. Okay, since you asked so nicely, I'll tell you. So overdubbing is basically just what it sounds like. You know, when you take dubbing of a film, it's putting words over top of the sound in the film. So overdubbing with music is layering voices on top of each other. Now I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, Kerbs, that just sounds like singing in harmony. What's the big deal? And you'd be correct. It (laughs) is singing in harmony, but it had never been done in animation. And Eileen Woods, the woman who played Cinderella, both singing and speaking, she was one of the first women to be recorded on top of her own voice for that beautiful Sing Sweet Nightingale sequence where she's cleaning the floors Mm -hmm. and the soap bubbles and the voices. So that scene was one that Walt kind of envisioned on his own after hearing the demo Mm -hmm. of the tape and decided, you know what, we're going to, I see other voices. I see other soap bubbles. I see other Cinderella singing. We need more layers. So this was another example, yet again, of Disney adopting relatively new technology and making it a key part of the film and the success of the film because that sequence is... It's beautiful. I read somewhere that um, after they played Walt, the original recording, there was just like a five minute silence that they all sat in a room and like stared at each other and they thought that he hated it, but he was just envisioning it. And then he hates it. (laughs) Yeah. I think the film has come so far in like pop culture's history that it now can't exist without the soundtrack. No, definitely not. I think there are elements of it that exist for people on their own, like the visuals, but really how often do you picture the visuals in any Disney princess film, really? How often do you picture the visuals without the music? Oh, of course. And this was the first example of them really doing that going hand in hand and capitalizing on it and that's like a huge part of their business model now it's like they they're making movies Mm. with the songs with the intentions that the songs are going to be a hit and they're going to win the oscar and like all that stuff 
All right. Can we talk about the story and why we feel like that resonated so much with people? Because we talked about like how it's been made and and different things that went into that, but just the the component of the actual character and why that was like such a big hit, so much so that it's been made and redone so many times. People love an underdog, first mm-hmm. of all. And Cer- Cinderella is like the yeah. ultimate oh, underdog. She is. And I think not only is she an underdog, she's a decent yeah. person. She's not, she's not doing anything to hurt other people to get ahead, which I think in like in our culture, that's really quite a 180 oh, yeah. from how a lot of us are kind of told or shown that you get yeah. ahead in life. And I mean, obviously there's been a lot of debates around like, why didn't she just leave? And I'm like, check your history. It was like whatever century France, she had nowhere yeah. to go. Thanks for coming it's out though. But like homeless. when you, so yeah. And when you dig into the layers of why she might have chosen to stay as well, like she's just such a noble, good, kind, compassionate, empathetic, yeah lovely beautiful person inside and out that it's hard not to root for her and not only that she's a character who just wants something so pure so badly like all she wants is to experience life outside of her tower Mm -hmm. which sounds very much like Rapunzel but that's that's a different (laughs) story um Cinderella's wish is really just to keep hoping that there's something better out there that she might get to experience one day Do you know what I noticed in this viewing? That's something that's kind of like glossed over me in the past when I was watching Mm. it um, yesterday is she doesn't actually realize that the prince is the prince. No. Like she's not there to get the prince. She just like fell in love. And then like, even like after she's gone and she's home, she has no idea she was dancing with the prince, which I thought was so interesting and such a contrast to the stepsisters and the stepmother who is literally all they want is mm-hmm. their hands on the money and the power. And she's just like, I mean, that would be nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, I mean, it's, it's another symbol of her humility. Like yeah. really, like I said before, she just is hoping for something better. She's dreaming of something better. She doesn't know what it is. Yeah. She just, you know, wishes for something more. And I think we see that story in so many other princesses plot lines. Mm-hmm. Um. But it's that kind of goodness that makes her like a quintessential princess. She is yeah. everything you would want someone with any in any position of power to be like. Someone who's looking yeah. out for the little guys. Someone exactly. who's looking out for the best interests of everyone. Someone who can put themselves in your shoes and, you know, make themselves as big or as small as you are, right? Like, it's just mm-hmm. she is everything. I don't know. She's. Just, I mean, this is why it's a 10 out of 10 for me. I really have no issues with her exactly well I mean based on everything we've talked about it's no surprise that this film did really well and literally kept Disney running after a slew of films that people just could not get behind for whatever reason I don't get it because I'm a huge Pinocchio stan myself so that one I would have been going to the theater and paying 25 cents or whatever it was to see it over and over again um we'll um we'll get into that one on another day but uh (laughs) yeah I digress about Pinocchio but (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, with a legacy that spans, you know, like 70 years or whatever it is at this point, it's arguably one of the most iconic films in the Disney arsenal. Yeah. Like when you think about the Swing Sweet Nightingale scene, So This Is Love, her transformation, I mean, we didn't even really talk about that, but that transformation Beautiful. from her rags to the dress, it's, an, it's one of the most magical moments mm-hmm. in all of the Disney canon. 
Like every single montage of great moments from Disney films, that is a a pillar. It is a staple. And fun fact, it was the first appearance of uh, Disney dust or pixie dust in any Disney film as well, which has now of course become a huge thing. Iconic. Yeah. It's very iconic. And I mean, the story also summarized everything, both the film and Walt himself stood for with that a dream is a mm-hmm. wish your heart makes. I mean, it's become the unofficial theme song for Disney world and basically every yeah. Disney and I, ever. And I think like just the, the fact of how like integral it is in the branding of Disney and the whole princess, like to me, she's kind of like Snow White is the OG, but Cinderella is the first like princess princess I don't know there's just something about her that she kind of sets the bar for the others I think Cinderella is the first Disney character that is truly relatable because yeah we are we as an audience are given enough insight into who she is and what she's overcome to truly celebrate that with her by the end of the film and really yeah the way that she comes to that end is without being greedy, without being villainous at all. And when you put that against the foil of the wicked stepmother, mm-hmm. she just, how could she not look like a saint? How could you not love her? She doesn't do anything despicable at any point. And I think that gives people hope that there are people out there who are truly good, kind people. And I mean, we yeah. all need to be reminded of that from time to time. Um, so, yeah. She's a star. I think I know. I think star. I know the answer to this, but I want to ask anyway. Is this your favorite Please Cinderella do. adaptation of all of them? Is this the best one? You know what? On- honestly, that's tough because I love I the live action. I because love it. The live action's good. Like we've got some brandy action. You know that that disaster that came out in the nineties. <laughs> There's Ever After. Got a Cinderella story. Like there's, I, there's lots. I should clarify the um, Lily James Richard Madden live action. Yeah. Okay, not any <laughs> of these other ones. I think I have to give the Golden Scepter, the Tierra, the Black Choker to uh, the animated one because yes. it's what everything else came from. You could not have any of the other ones without her. And every time I watch it, I now I'm like my mom. I hold my breath now too when she's putting on that silly slipper at the end even though you know what's going to happen you know it's going to fit you still are amazed by the magic of it and I think that's a beautiful Mm -hmm. thing although the number of times that I can hear Lily James in my head going have courage and be kind I'm like it's too much it's too often it's too often what about you oh the animated one for sure I think it's yeah hands down it's beautiful. Yeah. And I really, really do like the Lily James one. And I also am a big Ever After fan. So those oh, two are, yeah, are Drew. second. Yeah. What's next? Oh, so up next would be Aurora then, I guess, eh? If we're going in chronological yeah. order. Sleepy herself. This is a, I have so much turmoil like inner conflict about this movie i can't wait to talk about it with you i I honestly think this is just going to be me seeing if i can make you cry out of frustration that you don't know how to feel about that film because i know you love the art but you hate the main gals so i really just can't wait and i'm sure we'll get into a lively debate about whether prince philip is the best prince or not hold your thoughts on that for the next episode
Okay, so just like last time, I feel we have a few things we need to apologize for. And for me, that would be having just too much passion. As my mom once said, sometimes too much of a good thing is too much. And I went on a very long tangent there in the middle that was both wholly unnecessary and not even that interesting. So my apology goes to you, Lish, for wasting your time in the editing room. Thank you, Curbs. I appreciate that. It, it was a lot to cut out. Anyway... I want to apologize for being so hard on the king simply because he's pink. I don't hate pink people. If you're pink, it's okay. I support you. And as always, we want to shout out the very important resources that helped us collect this information for you guys to learn about along with us. I want to first mention one of my favorite books, Ink and Paint, The Woman of Walt Disney's Animation by Mindy Johnson. I would also like to mention a book that I have grown to love very dearly. It's called A Wish Your Heart Makes, from the Grimm Brothers' Ashen Puddle to Disney's Cinderella by the incomparable Charles Solomon. And a documentary that gave us a lot of great info called From Rags to Riches, The Making of Cinderella. The dream that you weave.